This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Connybeer. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Broadcasting today from our new home, Sirius XM Channel 132. We made the switch coming over from Channel 111 to our new home on Channel 132. If you're a regular listener and have Business Radio preset to Channel 111, don't worry, it'll automatically update to 132. In fact, it probably already has. If you're new to Business Radio and the Launchpad, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And if you have any questions or comments during today's show, give us a call here in the studio. The number here is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Jeff Russikow. He is the CEO at Boosted. Jeff, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me in the studio today. Thanks for having me. So Jeff has an interesting career journey. He began his career earning a Ph.D. in robotics and autonomous systems. And I think not to say that you're old, but (laughs) it wasn't a time when people weren't talking about robots that much. They were watching them in science fiction and Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars, but it wasn't really in the, the real world. So... You were really ahead of the curve there. You spent many formative years as a management consultant and then senior executive in large-scale tech companies, including SAP, Adobe, Symantec, and Yahoo, some amazing places, but I suspect a little boring compared to when you took the reins recently of Silicon Valley Electric Skateboard Company, Boosted, formerly known as Boosted Boards, so I've been careful to use the new name. Now Boosted Inc. Yeah, but but thrilled to have you in here. So – Maybe talk for a moment about what is Boosted, Inc. So uh, I often joke the name Boosted is what we do. We boost things. So we're the world's leading provider of uh, premier electric powertrains. And as a result of that, we make really amazing light electric vehicles. So when you say a light electric vehicle, what, what are we talking about? Because I think the first thing that comes to mind when somebody says electric vehicles, they think about the the modern day P.T. Barnum, Elon Musk, and Tesla. So, what do you th- what do you mean when you mean a light electric vehicle? I mean something that's more like a personal transportation device. Uh, so, when I ask most people, what do you think that that means? What what what's your dream way of getting around? Uh, what they typically say is, I want something that has the following attributes. I want something that has no size, no weight, is electric, so I don't need to break a sweat, um, and is instant. The minute I go out the door. I go. There's no hailing or waiting for anything. And the minute I arrive where I'm going, I'm there and I go up the elevator. No storage. Works well with other forms of transportation. And, um, you know, it's free and fun. And so what they're really describing is something that's the weight of a laptop that you just sort of throw down and can ride, whether it be a skateboard or a scooter or a light bike or a wheelchair or a walker. They're really just describing something that's really that lightweight and portable that throws under a desk when you're done. Yeah, I remember the first time that I was driving up a hill and I got passed by a bicycle and I was driving a car and I was going 25 miles an hour and it really looked like something out of the movie. I don't know if you remember Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure Yep, where he's cackling and he's riding this this bike along and it's just hauling butt. It's going along really fast. So these technologies in some ways have only really – Come available over the last five years to be able to build these small vehicles that are vanishingly small but are actually powerful and can move pretty quickly. Absolutely. And, and so the, the irony is that the, the last mobile revolution, the phone mobile revolution, really ended up being the economic power that really made you know, now the next mobile revolution, you know, literally physical electric vehicles possible. Um, you know, to, your, to your point earlier, 23 years ago when I finished my Ph.D., I famously told my buddies, I'll see you in about 20 to 25 years because until batteries get better and Wi-Fi is everywhere fast and geo is working well, um, we're wasting our time if you have to plug the vehicle into a wall. You get about 50 or 100 feet and, and you're done. And so it's really been the mobile phone revolution that's driven the material science department to catch up. We, we now live in a world where a three-pound battery the size of my fist can propel a 250-pound person up a San Francisco hill 
accelerating as it as it goes. And Wi-Fi is everywhere fast, and you know geolocation is is everywhere and ubiquitous, and computing continues to get faster and and cheaper. And so we really have the the cell phone revolution to thank for the electric vehicle revolution we're in now. Yeah, it's amazing. It takes all these technologies really for it to work well. It sounds like you went ahead and you realized at the time you could see the future when you were earning your PhD in robotics, and now it's exciting because it's come full circle and it's happening. Yes, I'm, I'm back, and, and so that's exactly it. I, I saw it was too early and um, you know, spent most of the last quarter uh, century uh, in other areas that were more relevant at the time, software, Internet, digital media. But really in the last few years, and you could start to see it with Tesla, the beginning of electric vehicles, and then and then drones, and then now you're starting to see just this massive proliferation. It really was the tipping point when those technologies hit. So for me, this is a return to my first love and first passion. Yeah, so now you've returned to your first love, your first passion. Could you talk a bit more about Boosted? Sure. What has Boosted historically been known for, and what are your current product offerings, and what can you share about the future for Boosted? So, so Boosted is, is known for the eponymous uh, Boosted Board. Uh, so we're the leading provider of electric skateboards. Uh, and for those that are not familiar, um, historically it's been an electric longboard, as it's called, about a three-foot-long skateboard, uh, that goes about 22 miles an hour, uh, can go up a 25% grade hill, and go flying down the other side and, and stop on a dime. And um, uh, we currently ship in 34 countries, and they've become a little bit of a uh, cultural phenomena. Uh, many, many Instagrammers and YouTubers just love them. Um, and so we've started to show up just as part of the, the popular culture. Um, uh, we've recently launched our latest wave of, of products, including shortboards now as well as longboards. And for the first time, I've taken all of the components in-house. It used to be we were taking leading-end skateboards and putting you know, electric powertrains on them, battery, motor, driver, motors. Uh, and then with this latest generation, we now for the first time are doing the entire vehicle in-house. Going forward, and, and people like to call that full stack. Full stack. So the full stack. Yeah. You put it together, and then you you can offer a better product. Absolutely. So the what theory was something we, like that? We we kind of hit the limit where the drivetrains were were getting truly superlative, um, and the limiting factor was the skateboard. Uh, no one in, made a skateboard thinking it would do twenty four miles an hour, two thousand miles a year, over real potholes and ruts and and curbs. And so at some point. You just start to hit the limit of what the skateboard could do. Uh, the analogy for me is, you know, when Fender introduced the electric guitar, you probably initially put an electric pickup on an acoustic guitar, but at some point the guitar itself had to actually become something different to really make electronic music. So the body had to become solid and the strings had to become light and it started to have more electronics. In our case, we went from a, a bamboo and fiberglass skateboard deck to snowboard technology. So we can further engineer the properties of the deck. Um, the trucks, as they're called, or the axles, needed to go from die cast to forged parts like an automotive uh, uh, vehicle. Um, and then we had to actually go into the chemistry business and start pouring our own wheels and our own recipe for, for urethane because we didn't want a vehicle that spins out at 24 miles an hour. We wanted something more like a Formula One race car that can actually hold turns at, at high speed. And so by the time we were done, it's still a skateboard or an e-board form factor, but it really is starting to become, you know, really its own electric vehicle. And I find these personal electric vehicles fascinating because you talked about the materials pieces and designing it as a full stack. And then you have the technologies that are available from the smartphone. You can effectively create brakes by writing code for the motors to slow it down as well. Yes, yeah, so that's actually the only way you can stop our, our boards. The only brakes are regenerative braking by running the batteries backward, and that's one of our hallmarks. Anyone who's familiar with booster boards knows that we have by far the most incredible brakes uh, because of our ability to, to run the battery backward. Yeah, even when you're going downhill. Yeah, so you can be flying down said 25% Great San Francisco Hill as a 250-pound person and, and hit the brakes and know with great confidence you're going to stop. So can you talk a bit about where you're going with the company? What are some of the products that are coming up? Absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned, what we, we really do is we boost things. We, we are known as the, the premium provider of these amazing uh, powertrains, um, and they work just as well when you put them into other kinds of vehicles. It doesn't have to be a uh, skateboard. So I'm not at liberty to go into too much detail, but uh, I think it's, it's well understood by now that going into 2019, 
we're looking to go into you know, scooters and bikes, uh, as well as other kinds of vehicles that may be a little bit more uh, exotic a, as, as well. Um, and they will have the exact same performance advantages that we're known for. So when you look at San Francisco, for people that have been in San Francisco in the last three months, mm-hmm. and people that have been in Santa Monica for the last six months, and a few of the other cities, people are familiar with these personal scooters, but maybe describe what is that new scooter form factor because in my view, this is going to become a global phenomenon very, very quickly. Yeah, no, I, I think it will. So the, to answer your immediate question, um, I think a lot of people are familiar with, um, you know, the old Razor kick scooter, kick scooter that uh, that we all ride as kids or, or buy for for our children. Um, so there's a lot of scooters that are being put out now by companies where um, you can think of them as a more robust version of that, uh, but they're electric and they have a foldable handle. And so the promise of that is the ability to walk outside and, as I was starting to say, have something you can jump onto right away, uh, not be stuck in traffic, just zip on through because you're not in a 3,500-pound, 20-foot-long car. And then when you get there, it's small enough that you can stow and just walk inside. And so um, what we're seeing right now is is a revolution, and it has been starting more in, in metropolitan areas where people are starting to discover, hey, maybe the car is the problem. Um, you know, for, for a long time, I think um, it, it took us a while to get there. Um, but I think people are starting to realize now, hey, look, half of all car trips are less than three miles. Um, and you're spending all your time getting a car, being stuck in traffic in this several thousand pound, 20 foot long thing, and then having to park it. And I think most people today would just say it's really just not working anymore whether I'm in a city or a campus or even a lot of suburbs, making the cars electric is exciting, and it makes the traffic jam cleaner, but it really doesn't solve the problem. Well, you're still moving around 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 pounds yeah. that don't need to be moved around, maybe the, just 200 pounds. Exactly. And, and so I think what you know, is just starting to happen now is, is these technologies you were mentioning earlier have hit. People are starting to realize, hey, I can actually jump onto something that weighs 15 pounds, that I literally can throw out of my back or throw in a bag that does the job, and then there's no getting and there's no parking and there's no traffic. Um, so we're starting to see some companies making these vehicles available in vehicle share-like models, kind of like Uber. Um, and then, But in general, I think what we're seeing is people just uh, starting to become aware of these form factors and whether they want to share them or whether they just want to buy them. You know, The, the true revolution is just um, – last mile transportation being overtaken by light vehicles. Well, I think looking forward, do you think that city design, and maybe, I don't really mean design, but maybe allocation of streets could be changed pretty dramatically with these new personal electronic ve- electric vehicles that are coming along? Absolutely. Um, in, in fact, I think for a lot of us in America, we don't realize how much of the world already starts to operate that way. So if I think about a lot of areas in Europe, and in Asia, where they've definitely grown up much more around a commuter culture, where people take the train, say, into Tokyo, and then set out on foot or, or bike or light vehicle for them. A lot of those cities already naturally are partitioned into more pedestrian um, or light vehicle you know, ways to go as opposed to uh, cars. But, you know, cities were not really made for cars. We, we've kind of just gotten blind to it. But uh, look at 44% of our cities is dedicated to cars being parked going at about one mile an hour by, and we've dedicated the entire side of every street in every city for parking. parking. Yeah. So um, so the ability to actually make cities uh, be able to accept light vehicles is actually very, very trivially simple uh, do to you, do. Do you think when you look at cities, so let's just fast forward 20 years, mm-hmm. and you have people that love these vehicles, do you think not just bike lanes, but entire city streets will be allocated to these vehicles for getting around? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do it, but I, I can easily imagine having pedestrian and light vehicle um, dedicated uh, roads. Uh, but even short of that, you know, it's fairly prevalent now to have road, bike lane, uh, and sidewalk. Uh, and the bike lane is a very underutilized uh, lane that, that's actually, you know, fairly prevalent in a lot of areas. Um, and they're useful for more things than bicycle. And so in my simple view of the world, we'll have vehicles that go fast, medium, and slow. We'll have road, lane, 
you know, bike lane um, and sidewalk, and then adult and child. And then it's pretty easy to fill in the matrix from there in terms of where you ought to be. Well, and also when you talk about GPS and location technologies, and then you might have localization because you could have cameras that can figure out exactly where you are, what lane you're in, et cetera. There's no reason that a city couldn't put together regulatory guidelines for speed limits that are effectively enforced. So you open up the throttle on a scooter and you're in certain areas and maybe it'll only go about eight miles an hour. Mm -hmm. But then you're in the middle of one of these lanes and it'll let you go 20 miles an hour. Yeah, we absolutely have the ability uh, to do that uh, today. Um, And I, I think the main thing for public policy officials is to just maybe simplify the code. Right now, the public policy world gets into a lot of arcane detail about, is it a bike? Is it a scooter? Does it have a seat? Does it have an electric motor? Does it have a... um, And you end up with 14 or 15 different vehicles. And I really think that if we just simplified it to fast, medium, and slow, does it really matter why you're going 25 miles an hour, whether you're Usain Bolt and running at 25 miles an hour, or whether you're on a pedal bike or on an electric scooter, if you're doing 25 miles an hour, you probably shouldn't be on the sidewalk. Um, And so I think we can make it a lot easier. Yeah, and obviously there are speeds at which if you actually hit something, it's more likely you're going to get hurt. And it's kind of that trade-off, and it really is a trade-off between getting to where you want to go intact but actually getting there before you die. Absolutely, and I I think um, uh, there's you're hitting on part of it. It's been interesting to me in that there's been so much focus on the regulation about where to park vehicles, which has been really driven to the fore by – some of the scooter share companies, you know, being a bit more provocative in terms of uh, launching into cities to try and drive some of the public policy debate. But there's really probably three areas of of, uh, policy we ought to be thinking about. One is vehicles in motion, what we were just talking about, speed limits, how old you need to be ride, you know, and things like uh, to ride and things like that. Vehicles at rest, you know, where can you park them or stow them and how do we make the cities better for that? And then the last thing is the vehicle itself. Is the vehicle a vehicle? So one of the things that concerns me is that right now a lot of the vehicles that are being put on the street are more leisure or toy-grade products. They're not really intended to be something people riding in traffic in front of 5,000-pound trucks or, or cars. And so we don't let people take a rental car off the lot without having certain minimum standards of what is a car that can go on the road or the freeway. I think it's very important for us to think about what these electric vehicles need to actually be able to demonstrate in terms of acceleration, braking, can they climb a hill, can they stop going down a hill, uh, there's just a minimum performance we ought to think about as opposed to treating them like a, a toy with a battery. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Rob Connybeer, and I'm in the studio right now with Jeff Russikow. He is the CEO of Boosted. And we're talking about the future of transportation in cities, and in particular, personal transportation. So as an investor right now, it's been fascinating watching the rise of these scooter companies. Very specifically, there's Bird, there's Lime, there's Skip. There are different people building basically scooter rentals where I use my app. I find one of these razor-sized powered scooters that's close to me, and then for a dollar or two or three, I can use it to go two or three miles to my destination, (laughs) leave it wherever I want. And what I've heard about the economics, just generally speaking, is these will get ridden anywhere from five to ten times per day, and they actually have a payback period where they get paid back in three or four months. Along the way, they often get trashed and used pretty mercilessly during that time frame. And as an investor, as we think about this, we think about the trade-off between, will people want to rent these things and use it as a utility as the cost of that comes down? And it's not just $400 to do it, but it's $200, $100. Will people, and it's lighter and smaller, mm, will they just want to buy it? Will they do that or will they just buy it? And how do you think about yeah. that trade-off? I think the, looking out like three, four years. Yeah, I actually think in this case, uh, past this prologue in that. Um, so think about today with the automobile. Um, let me restart. Just frame it this way. I think when you look at the use case of the the commuter, most of the travel falls into two loose buckets: ad hoc travel and routine travel. 
So think about when you use an Uber, Lyft, or taxi today. It's ad hoc. Hey, let's go to a bar. We're hitting a restaurant. I already parked my car for 35 bucks at my work, and now I need to go across town for a radio interview and then come back. So for that, I'm going to uh, go Uber or Lyft or taxi, paying 4 or $5, $6 a mile, no problem. It's convenient. It's ad hoc travel, spot market. Uh, it's a great deal. Um, on the other hand, when I think about routine travel, I'm commuting or I'm running routine errands. I'm not going to pay 4 or $5, $6 a mile. Now I want it to be pennies per mile. And so if you told me now I need to rent a scooter for $4 a ride, round trip, $8 a day, and I can go get that scooter on Amazon for 400 and something bucks and pay back some month and a half or whatever. You're going to buy it yourself. Right. And so I, I think um, a lot of people are taking a binary view with its share or its ownership. And I think what we see is it's both. I own a car and I use Uber. And it's really – so I think share model lends itself towards ad hoc travel, um, places where there's a lot of bustling around, tourism, kind of ad hoc trips. Um, and then I think the, the majority of vehicles – uh, will actually be purchased where people are commuting and running errands, going to and from the train station, from the train station to work, where they want it to be pennies per mile, and they want it to um, uh, basically be a great commuter vehicle. Yeah, I, I agree. I think sometimes when people predict the future, they think it's just going to be binary. So we were talking in the last segment about robotics, and there are some people that are thinking that robotics are going to robots are going to put everybody out of a job, and it's going to happen overnight. We're going to have this massive disruption but in reality, when you look at the adoption of technologies, it could be quite large, but they rarely eliminate everything else in terms of the models. Yeah, I think uh, they maybe just... over a hundred years you see it, <coughs> but not over a five to ten year time frame. No, and I think also, um, you know, people adopt the things that make sense. But I agree with you. Few things ever go binary. Um, you know, the word processor never put people out of work. Um, you know, AI and robotics will never put people to work. They, they enable the more routine. So I, I think in this case, what we're really talking about is I think everyone seems to agree. This is what I'm excited about is even a year ago, if you asked the investor community, hey, what do you think about any of this stuff? They would just say scooters are dorky and no one wants to be seen dead riding those things. Uh, and a year later, they're putting billions of dollars into it. So I think the what I'm delighted about is that everyone seems to have you know, come around and agree that we really need to solve last mile transportation and that some set of forms of light vehicle really seems to be the right answer. And now all they're really trying to dither around is what's the model? Is it a share model? Is it an ownership model? Is it a subscription model? Um, I get to be fortunate in that since I'm a provider of premium vehicles, I don't need to actually have a strong position because consumers are very excited to buy our products as well as the share companies. Uh, and so as the Tesla or the Apple of the, the space, um, we get to serve everybody. And so long as more people are adopting these vehicles, um, we're happy. We're getting people out of cars. Well, it's true in any product category that you sell to consumers, people don't really need a 7 Series BMW. They don't even really need a 5 Series or a 3 Series. They probably do just fine with the basic entry-level Hyundai, Ford, whatever. Yes, but those are huge industries because people value those other things that are in there. And I think coming back to this personal electric wave, I think this is going to be one of the biggest urban planning stories of the next 20 or 30 years that a lot of people don't fully see coming yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I know we, we started touching that earlier, but uh, the statistic I mentioned only blew my mind. 44% of our cities, when you start to actually – lay out the streets, the parking, the parking garages. It's amazing how much of our, our, our cities are actually dedicated to uh, basically the care and feeding of, of automobiles. And um, there was a really interesting Instagram uh, picture that one of our brand ambassadors did at, down in L.A. where he was in a, uh, a top of a parking garage. There were no cars uh, on that top level. And he just basically put, you know, electric skateboard in each spot. And you started to realize um, just how much space was being devoted to cars being stored that people drive twice a day to work, from work. This is probably one where when you look at it, it's just as big a change as when you went from horses mm -hmm. in animal-powered transportation to the internal combustion engine and the car and truck. Absolutely. and But in this case, I think it can happen faster. And the reason why is when when the automobile first came out, there was no infrastructure, really. You still had dirt roads and mud. 
Um, and so I, I do you know, understand and agree what you're saying about reformatting cities. But one of the great things about light electric vehicles is the cities are perfectly fine right now. They're already paved. And all we're really talking about is how to allocate parking um, and maybe putting down more bike lanes. So what we're really talking about is paint and a little bit of sand grit. Uh, yeah. that's, that, that's really all you need. Yeah, because what you can do is street by street, even if people are complaining about scooters being left on the sidewalk, you could just as easily have two spaces on the street be like handicapped spaces, but they're scooter spaces. Exactly. I mean, we, um, you know, I, I do agree that right now these vehicles being left on the sidewalk and blocking the ways is inappropriate, and, and that should not be happening, and I, I also don't like it. But I also do agree it's a bit of a red herring because if you take one or two spots out, on every street, pick up color of paint and just basically paint a square down. You could paint, uh, you could park 30, 40 vehicles in the space of one automobile on every street and solve that problem. And then the same thing is we've got a lot of streets where just for the cost of a white stripe, you can very easily have a lot more bike lanes. How do people get around when it snows or rains then? I think with the current class of vehicles that you have right now, not that easily. So clearly in the case of a skateboard, um, our vehicles actually take the weather really well, but just by virtue of being a skateboard with slick wheels, we do not recommend that people ride in, in wet conditions. Um, but as we go to, you know, bike and scooter and other vehicles, uh, the vehicles can definitely take the weather. And in most places in the world, a lot of people take it on. But clearly, I think there's a next step to just think about vehicles that are a little more substantial, that have some kind of cowling or cover, um, that are just more pleasant to, to ride. And that's very easily a next step. Be able to do that. To break, to push the wind out of the way, et cetera. So, one final question before we take a very short break: Just how big is this opportunity? When you think about how big it is for Boosted or other mm -hmm. people that are building these vehicles, how big is that market? I mean, insanely large, uh, trillions. And you know, to put some numbers, I mean, pretty much everyone of working age commutes, um, and whether you're going a couple miles or whether you're going forty miles, you always are doing the last mile. So. It's pretty much something that everyone needs to do. Um, as one statistic, if you just have hundreds of millions of people worldwide commuting every day and multiply just even that by the cost of a subway token or a bus ticket round trip um, or, you know, a few dimes a mile for a car, just think about that. You know, uh, it's, it's a very large opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about a subway car, even though it's efficient when you have it packed full of people, they still weigh a lot. Mm-hmm. They still take up a lot of space, and you do have to wait, and you don't get to go exactly where you want to go as opposed to where you could go with one of these personal yeah. electric vehicles. I mean, mass transportation is great for going from hub to hub, um, and so train, subway, but getting to and from hub is really the problem. Um, so in my case, I may drive 40 miles from my house in suburbia San Francisco very quickly in about 30 minutes. Um, I won't do the math on the speed limit I'm breaking there, but – then I could spend 45 minutes going the last mile and a half just coming up 3rd Street. And so if, whether you're taking New Jersey Transit into New York or taking the T, it's really the first mile and a half to the mass transit and the last mile and a half from the mass transit that can consume And that's half. what makes it more complimentary, too. It would make it easier for you to be able to take Caltrain up if you knew it was easy to get yeah. around once you got up here. The benefit of something that really is ultralight, like a skateboard or a scooter that has a foldable handle and really is like 20 pounds or less, is you really um, do start to have something that complements as opposed to competes with public transportation. Because even a bike is a little bit of a pain in the hall onto a, a, a subway or a bus. But when you have something that's 20-something inches long and tucks between your knees or in your backpack, you really do have just a, a stowable magic carpet. Um, and then it works really well with any other form of public transport. Yeah, and in another 10 years, it'll weigh a lot less yeah, as well. as the batteries and the motors get better. So we need to take a short break. Stay with us. When we're back, I'll continue my conversation with Jeff Russikow. He is the CEO at Boosted. I'm Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Jeff Russikow. He is the CEO at Boosted. And when we left off before the break, we were talking all about how personal electric vehicles, scooters, and other form factors are going to transform cities 
over the next 5, 10, 20 years. But going back to the beginning, we were talking about how you got your PhD in robotics. Could you talk a bit more about what were you studying at the time and where your interest in robotics came from? Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, an evolution for me. I, coming out of high school, no one ever really tells you like what the real jobs are in, in the real world, and I kind of liked everything. So um, I had this you know, wild idea that if I became some kind of a mechanical engineer and did bioengineering, I was kind of hitting it all because I had tech and science and humanity and and medicine. And um, and then in college, I started out getting into robotics by making uh, human or anthropomorphic-like robots because I was really interested in, um, you know, you studying... say anthropomorphic, what does that mean, like human-like? Human-like. Okay. So I was really interested in, like, bionic limbs and, you know, trying to uh, help people and, and do things around that. And so I originally backed into um, robotics by actually trying to make bionic limbs. Uh, and then I just really liked the, the robotics part. And so by the time I got to, to grad school, it started to become uh, space and underwater and aerial systems uh, at Stanford. And, um, you know, just got really interested in, in, in kind of the whole world. Um, the challenge was, and a little bit the punchline was, there was always a cable. <laughs> you always had power and data um, coming from a wall socket and a computer rack somewhere. Um, and so whether you were putting a vehicle a 1,000 meters down below the water surface to look at the ocean bottom, you still had a 1,000 meters of cable going from the vehicle all the way up to your boat on the top, and your boat's going up and down on eight-foot swells, so it's bouncing this thing around like a yo-yo, and um, you got a 1,000 meters of current washing over that string all the way down, um, and you're just sitting there getting seasick trying to, to get the thing to go where you wanted to, so... Do that for about a summer, and you really get impressed with how much you do not want to have a cable <laughs> connecting to your you know it's really it's really interesting you bring this up because there were a lot of things I suspect at the time you could figure out how to do, but there were a few enabling technologies that were decades away, and it sounds like batteries were one of them, and probably computation was another yeah i mean if if you look at all a lot of the things that are are seeing a renaissance now, almost like the the list of Elon Musk things, whether it be electric cars or hyperloop and air bearings or a lot of these things self driving cars to tell you the truth the the body of the Frankenstein monster. We've had basically the ability to make the body since the late 70s, direct drive robots, you know, cars, the ability to make something that if it had the right brains and sensing um, could do these things, right? There's nothing new about the body of an electric uh, driving, uh, self-driving car. Um, and so by the time I was doing a PhD in the early 90s, uh, this stuff was old hat. We were already working on, you know, how to get the brains into these things. Um, and so a lot of the you know visual sensing and processing and AI and things like that, we had that even then. There was just two or three things, and I joke it was the material science department, but that really – so if you think about batteries, material science, faster silicon, material science, um, you know, uh, Wi-Fi and, and, and things like that, um, you know, partly material science, partly just uh, standards, the, the proliferation of, um, of, of just uh, – uh, bandwidth everywhere. Um, and so it was really speed um, and ubiquity um, and batteries that could literally pull their own weight was the limiting factor. Did you realize it at the time? Yes. And so that was what I realized is just it's, until we basically have uh, batteries that are just, you know, an order of magnitude more powerful, you just couldn't make a robot that could walk across the, the room or a car that could drive itself or a vehicle that could fly itself because it just didn't have a way to get off of that umbilical cord. Um, and so you could just sort of look at, you know, all the curves, not just the Moore's Law, but you can look at the equivalent for all these other technologies. And so I literally told my buddies, I'll see you in about 20 to 25 years. It's been 23 years. And about two, three years ago, this stuff really started to did, tip. Did you realize it while you were – was it pre-dissertation that you realized, wow – this is exciting, but I'm going to have to do other stuff for 20 years. At what moment did you come to the realization of, I'm going to go do something else? Until While sitting on that boat for summer? Okay. <laughs> so it was when you were steering that, getting seasick, that's why you were thinking about it. This yeah, I had... This I had, damn string is getting pulled away. I, I had 12 hours of seasickness a day, every day, to think about it. So what was your first startup? Um, my first startup uh, was a startup and a roll-up. So I, I did about uh, 16, 17 years first. Uh, you mentioned McKinsey, but then after that as, as a more of a Fortune 500 senior exec. 
And so I actually really only started to come uh, to entrepreneurship uh, slowly in my 40s. I, um, uh, I had done four uh, Fortune 500s. I wanted to take a break from big. Uh, I spent some time as an operating partner. Uh, and then my first startup was almost by accident. I went into growth equity thinking I'd run something that was more of a growth size company. Um, took a look at buying a company that was a few billion dollars. Realized that it had an entrepreneurial idea. And then I scoured the world and found a startup that was only $2 million in revenue in Auckland, New Zealand, that actually was doing that and had exciting products, but it was only $2 bucks. How did you find them? Um, with great difficulty, I just really just started scanning. Um, in this case, this was the HR SaaS space, uh, pretty different than hardware. Um, and so this is software for human resources. Yes. And so I, what I was looking at was uh, buying uh, one of the large job board companies. And I just realized that the whole model didn't make sense. So if I thought about e-commerce for the last 15 or 20 years, it's about the product finding you, right? And you can buy it in a click. That's what Amazon does. But when you look for a job, you're still stuck in this world where you broadcast to 7.5 billion people in the human race that you need, whatever, a waiter at this restaurant and relying on a very tiny fractionless people to see your broadcast media and then do 30 minutes of homework filling out a form. Why couldn't the job just target you and you can basically apply in a click the same way as Amazon works? It seems like we've already solved that. So I found a company in Auckland, New Zealand that was really taking this T-shirt inside out approach of almost like Amazon for jobs. Um, and when you were looking for it, were you on your own or were you working with somebody else? In this case, I was uh, an operating partner or CEO in residence with a private equity slash growth equity firm. And um, and so at that point, I actually got creative. We, we bought um, basically the startup with uh, some assets that we already had in another company in the portfolio. So so basically no no cash. Um, sassified the whole thing, and then it started really selling like hotcakes, and then I had no way to actually scale the company fast enough, so then uh, bought a professional services firm um, that basically had sales account management. So I rolled up essentially a, a $60 million company uh, starting with a $2 million so, so, piece. So backing up a moment, you said you were an operating partner and EIR at a private equity firm? Yes. So you had some friends, acquaintances, business colleagues who wanted you to come in because they knew you were good at running companies. Exactly. Building and running companies. Yep. And they effectively gave you a checkbook mm -hmm. and said, could you find some things that fit an interesting theme and we can provide you with the capital to put the pieces together? Absolutely. And But th their thinking was probably something that was more like three, four, five hundred million dollars just as a good, you know, small start. And so uh, this ended up going in a entrepreneurial direction that was, was – uh, more entrepreneurial than I think we had all thought about, and uh, it was very exciting to so, jump so into. So I have to ask this question. There's this Auckland company, uh huh, and you found them. How did you reach out to them the first time? Um, you know, I think you, in a lot of cases, once you start having an investment thesis, you, you start getting involved in that community or that industry and going to meetings. And so it's, it's actually, you, you end up meeting people not by flying the world, but a lot of times you, you go to those places where they congregate and you can see people speak and demonstrate and really in those kind of trade environments. Oh, so you'd seen them at a conference or something like that. So you had gotten to know the founders or the, the execs in this company, yep. this $2 million a year company. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then you turned it from a, more of a product company into software as a service company. Exactly. And then grew it. Okay. Yes. Well, it sounds like that type of thinking is a lot like what an entrepreneur does. I think so. Um, in that case, I had the, the fortunate benefit that I also had some tools at my disposal that a lot of startup entrepreneurs would not, which I've had the, the money, but also the ability to combine companies. And so for me, coming from large companies, mergers, acquisitions, putting things together, having a different business model idea and being able to combine pieces to do it, that's definitely a big company uh, kind of uh, 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 toolkit that you get to use that is usually not at your disposal when you're a, a Series A or Series B startup and you're not acquiring uh, pieces and putting them uh, together. So that was kind of a good chance for me to get into small um, by kind of baby-stepping my way down. And then my my second startup was a true Series A, you know, with single-digit revenues and, um, you know, tens of people. Uh, and then my, you know, evolution or education about true scrappy, you know, was able to go the rest of the way. Had I not kind of passed my way through 
a couple of you know 60s and 300s in, in revenue on the way, I think it definitely would have been a, a faster learning curve. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Jeff Russikow. He is the CEO at Boosted, and we're talking about how you can transfer skills from larger companies, experience at larger companies, to the entrepreneurial world. So you had time at Adobe, Symantec, Yahoo. What advice do you have for people that are in large operating roles or have been at large established companies in terms of what skills they should build if down the road they do want to start something or join a startup? You know, I, I'm probably going to be a little bit countercultural to a lot of Silicon Valley with my answer, which is I think that people with those backgrounds have a tremendous amount to offer. You know, I, I know that there's a, a bit of a conventional folklore that, um, you know, founders are born, uh, not, not uh, bred. But um, the reality is, is when you're in larger companies, you have an incredible uh, academy skill, uh, the set of, uh, academy environment develop skills about how to manage a business and how to run many different parts of a business. Um, you just then need to learn how to scale down because small is different. But, um, you know, the, the skills of how to manage people, how to, um, you know, think like a general manager is incredibly valuable as you grow a business. Um, and so my, my advice, which was a second part of your question, is there is a, an opportunity to be very entrepreneurial in large companies because I don't care how large a company is. There's a small product line. There's a small function. There's something that needs to be scaled. There's always something that needs to be done that still has no budget and is scrappy. Um, and so if you can be in a $2 billion business unit but figure out how to make something go from zero to $200 million within it, you're absolutely getting the skill sets to become a, an entrepreneur or CEO of a startup. You're having the pleasure of doing it within a, a larger, safer, resourced environment. Um, but you absolutely can get a lot of the skills. Um, I'll say it again, the skills uh, uh, to be an entrepreneur in a big company if you look for the right type of roles and opportunities. One of the things that I find is interesting is even with some of the world's largest companies, mm -hmm. when you talk to somebody who's one of the top five or ten executives, in a lot of ways it's like the, the thought process and the way that they approach things is really not that much different than if you're one of the top five people at a startup with about 150 people or 100 people. Absolutely. I would agree. And, and it surprises people, but in a lot of ways what you're doing is the same, which is you're hiring, you're raising money, because anybody that has a public company is always raising money because Absolutely. you want to keep your cost of capital low, so you want to keep the stock price up. It's mm -hmm. not just about that value. It's actually yep. about having to suffer less dilution to pay for the yep. things you want to invest in. Do you have a board? Um, you're thinking about all the functions and how they interrelate to each other. Um, and to some degree, you're always doing with unknowns. If you're, you're trying to take a company into something new, then um, all the questions are not well identified and all the answers are not available in a market research report. So um, there's definitely still a lot of trying to discern from first principle what is the question and how would I answer that. And how do I take a group of whether it be 100 people or 300,000 people uh, through ambiguity and um, and get them more aligned uh, than they were uh, before. Yeah, and I think maybe the real difference, though, is does the skill set transfer to, say, the first five or ten people as opposed to after the company is at about 30, 40, 50 people? I, I think much less so. I, I do agree that um, somebody like me tends to jump in more when there's more like at least 50 or 60, and um, you've got a good sense of at least what the product is and now you need someone to really just say, okay, given that idea, how would I grow it? I think the other thing which I'm always impressed by is um, when you're in a startup, until the day you are profitable, you're a distressed company. I, I don't care if you're growing at 500%. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't you're care. You're racing if, against insolvency. You're racing against insolvency because you're still dependent on that next investor to come in. And um, no matter how well you're doing, until the day you break even. And so that is probably the one thing that really is the hardest thing. I think when I, people talk about scaling down, it's the mindset that you don't know, you know how it's going to work out in the next 18 months. You just get up every day and you go for it and you make it happen. And um, that's not something that you think about when you're in a, a $10 billion company. The, the success it doesn't feel as existential. No. The, the success and failure of the company is, is not really on your mind. $10 billion companies don't die overnight. 
And so you're focused on your project, you're focused on your team. When you've got 50 or 60 people in one room, um, whether you live or die in the next 18 months is a real question. And these are people, and they've got families, and you've got payroll. Um, you have investors that you know only have investments in maybe 20 or 30 things. Um, and so it, it matters. The highs are higher and the lows are lower, and it's more of an emotional roller coaster than when you're managing 10 or 15,000 people. So bringing this full circle back to Boosted, mm-hmm. could you flesh out how you connected with Boosted, how you found them, or how they found you? Um, incredible luck, uh, just because I'm enjoying it so much. Um, so in my case, I originally um, was introduced to uh, the founders of Boosted through the investor. Uh, so I met Samir Call over at Coastal Ventures, and um, you know, we chatted, and he said, I'd really like you to consider CEOing something in our portfolio. And um, I said, if you have ones where the founders are actively saying they're interested in bringing on a, a CEO, then, then I'd love to, but that's an important criteria, I think, in both directions. Um, he introduced me to three or four companies, and this was one of them. Um, and when I met the, the founders at Boosted, uh, it was like long-lost brothers. Uh, they stepped out of the exact same Ph.D. program at Stanford that I had finished 23 years ago. Same class. <laughs> same classes. Uh, same and, professors. And in some cases, to this day, the same professors. Their, their thesis advisor was my departmental advisor uh, in the early 90s. So we're looking at each other, and we're like kindred spirit. And they're like, hey, if we went off and did a business career, we'd be you. And I'm looking at them like if I had the technologies then that we have now. Yeah, if I didn't I'd... have that little wire <laughs> dragging through the water while I was getting seasick 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and so for me, so much of the technology has changed, but so much hasn't. Just the ability to walk in to the shop and put my hands at components and pick up almost where I left off um, was just a thrill. Uh, it was like coming back to a first love. And then... And then my kids, um, my daughters were already very familiar with Boosted, and they're like, Dad, you, you have to do this. I'm like, I can buy you a couple of Boosted boards. So like, no, Dad, I don't think you get it. You, you have to do this. Because <laughs> um, they were so familiar with the brand. Um, you know, it, it's, it was so much the, something that they were seeing on Instagram and YouTube for years. Um, they just said, this is something just you need to do. So my, how my quickly 13-year-olds. Did that, how quickly did that courtship unfold between you and the founders of Boosted? Um, by a lot of people's standards, slowly, but my, uh, quickly, I think uh, I probably chatted with them for about a month and a half. Um, I'm actually, uh, I'm always amazed when I see folks that take a, a senior role or a CEO role where they go through the interview process and then make a call on the job. Um, you know, if, if it, a, a VC uh, investor, you know, takes a, a month, month and a half to really do due diligence on a company, and they get to invest in dozens or hundreds, and you're coming in and you only get to play a portfolio of one, your diligence better be at least as good um, as any investor. And so uh, I'm a big believer that you should completely diligence the thing, almost onboard yourself, and write like a 10-page memo of what you would do in the first year and present that back to uh, the board uh, and the investors and the, the rest of the management team and say, this is kind of what I'm thinking. So it's almost like a consulting engagement. And make sure you're aligned. Uh, and if you are, then you're going to be able to hit the, 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 the ball out of the park. Um, a lot of people don't do this. And then four months, six months, nine months in, they realize they never were on the the same page or didn't really know what they're getting it's, into. It's, it's really, it's a, that's a really interesting insight because I find that the best executives that come in to work at companies, which I've had the privilege of investing in, tend to focus right away on understanding the business and thinking about the business and asking questions about the business. And I find that the most valuable interviews that I have and a leading indicator of whether somebody will be a good fit is in talking to them about the business, how they view it. What would you do? What would you do day one? What would you do week one? What would you do month one, mm-hmm. et cetera? Because then it's not just whether they have the right answers. That's actually how you learn about how they think, how they recruit, how good their networks are, and those different pieces, and spend almost no time going through their resume. Yeah, spend you, almost no time talking about their past. I agree. If you, if you understand how they think, you're basically getting the resume or what you needed out of it. And um, if they're giving you answers in the first hour, I do this, I do this, I do this, they have to be applying pattern recognition from their last experiences because how could they possibly know the, this business to know if the patterns apply? So if you don't work together long enough to actually diagnose the company 
and come up with your, you know, 100-day or first-year plan before you come in, then, you know, how can you possibly have good answers? And then how can you also evaluate whether the job is a good job? One of the things I loved about Boosted is such a great group of humans, not only the board but also the, the management team, they pretty much pulled all the dead bodies out on the porch. And just, you know, a lot of times when you're talking with startups, particularly when you're a, a CEO that's coming in after it started, um, it, there's just a lot of things that tend to be very common. People are overexcited about um, uh, the revenue, and so don't divide by two, and divide by four, which means that the, hey, we're almost profitable is definitely not uh, <laughs> true. Um, the investors are really excited about the business, um, and the founders really want help. Is really the investors are fatigued uh, in the business. The uh, founders are not sure they want the help, but they need the bridge. Um, and a lot of the reference customers are, are actually probably pilot customers that are not paying. So when you kind of get through that, um, you have to kind of find where... These are all the bodies in the basement, as you These are the bodies in the basement. And so but what I love is... it builds trust, though. It builds trust. So I love that these guys literally just pulled everything out and said, this is what's great, and there was a lot about Boosted that was amazing. But then they're like, hey, this is what we need help fixing, and just here, and, and just can you help us with this? And so they're very open about what they're their needs were. And so I didn't need to spend a lot of time looking for the yellow flags because they were, they were waving them. Um, and then, you know, you can really trust these people. So one question I want to ask you, we have uh, just a quick minute here. You had this passion for robotics and what was going on, mm -hmm. and then you kind of moved away from it. And I think there's a tension people feel between going in, doing what you love, but it might just not be the right time. How should people think about that? Um, I tend to think about um, take what is it you love and try and find, you know, where that applies. So, I mean, if I were to be slightly more abstract, um, as a mechanical or electrical mechanical engineer, I just really loved complicated systems and understanding how they work and how to make them go. Um, turns out that's cool for making a robot go, but it's also great for understanding a complicated business. And so for me, I always found, you know, whether I was at, at a Yahoo or Adobe or whatever, um, I found I got a lot of the same pleasure uh, about how to basically control that complicated system or my portion of it uh, to make it do you know what it is that it needed to do. So it sounds like, in a sense, it's almost like a pivot. There's a common thing, but you apply it in a different way. Yeah. If you look at generations of people who have gotten degrees in robotics, how many fields have come out of it? AI, sensing? I mean, there aren't really that many robots in the kitchen washing dishes, but think about all the fields that have come out of the people that started there. Great advice. So we'll have to wrap. Thank you so much for joining me. So for people that want to learn more about Boosted, where should they go? Uh, BoostedBoards.com. And to follow you? Uh, Jeff at BoostedBoards.com. Great. Uh, or find me on Instagram. Thanks again. So that just does, just about does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us. You can follow Business Radio on Twitter at BizRadio132. And to follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc and on Twitter at Rob Connybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests, Alex Salkiver, Vivek Wadwa, and Jeff Rusico. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash, assistant producer, Charlene Cotto, and engineer, Jeff Simmons. And thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 